Hi, my name is Ian Alexander Tash, and you're listening to Course Consideration, brought to you by The Runner. CSUB has a lot of different degrees and even more classes, but most of us don't know what's being taught on our campus, and we might be really missing out on some of that. So that's why I decided to interview some professors to hopefully see what sort of interesting, odd things that our campus thinks might be cool to learn. I hope you enjoy the interview. Uh, thank you again so much for joining me today. My pleasure. All right. Well, let's get started with introductions. Could you introduce yourself and tell the listeners a little bit about you? Sure. My name is Dr. Robert Yoey, and I'm a professor of anthropology here at CSUB. Uh, this is my 22nd year on campus, and well, actually, technically almost my 25th year because I taught here part-time between 1990 and 1993. Mm -hmm. So uh, I have a great familiarity with the history of this campus and mm -hmm. have been a part of it that time. And my interests uh, are in anthropology, of course, because I'm a mm -hmm. professor of anthropology. Uh, my specialty is archaeology. <laughs> and I have a broad range of interests and expertise that range from uh, forensic anthropology to the hunting and gathering peoples in the prehistory of North America. And more recently in my career, in the last 20 years, I've been working in Egypt at an archaeological site called Tel Belheba. So uh, we've had a very successful program and a lot of good students over the years. And, and many of them have gone on to do great things in the discipline. So uh, that's a little bit about me and CSUB. Awesome. That, that, yeah, I was looking through uh, you know, your resume and everything. It, it was uh, so, so many interesting just experiences I saw in there. So it was like, it was really fascinating to get to read about you for sure. And just all the different things you've been able to work with. But one of the things we're here to talk about today, though, that you've worked with a lot is uh, lithic technology. Ah, lithic technology. Yes. Yeah. So uh, I see that we, uh, we at CSUB have uh, anthropology of uh, 4130, Introduction to Lithic Technology. That's correct. Could, yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about that class? Yeah, well, the, the class is designed primarily for people who have an interest in archaeology, mm -hmm. but also for people that just have an interest in the whole idea of being able to try to replicate a technology that has existed for over 3 million years, but few people today still know how to accomplish and mm -hmm. uh, stone tools have been have been around as i said for for a very long time and in lithic technology we try to in the process of teaching students how to replicate various types of stone tools we also try to impress on those particularly the archaeologists the importance of being able to read the evidence that the waste 
uh, flakes that are left on the surface of archaeological sites and then also in deep archaeological deposits over time. Uh, because frequently the tools themselves have either been used up off site or get broken in manufacture and there's not a great deal of evidence to tell you uh, about what people were trying to make mm -hmm. other than by looking at the residue that's produced in their production. We like to call it debitage because it sounds better than waste flakes. That's a French term. Uh, but it's real, you know, the reason it's so important to archaeology is that the one thing that survives under all circumstances, uh, unless there's been, you know, some kind of volcanic eruption, is stone. Uh, if you make a stone tool 2.5 million years ago, you can dig it up, uh, you know, three days from now and it'll look as good as it did in most cases, um, as it did all those million years ago. So there is an abundance, particularly in hunting and gathering uh, people's archeological sites. Uh, the mass of what we find are stone tools or more typically the stone tool waste. So mm -hmm. we're preparing archeologists uh, and those people are just generally interested to be able to look at those flakes and be able to tell what stage of production from raw material uh, that is being represented or a series of processes. Let's say the production from a raw piece of uh, obsidian or volcanic glass uh, to a finished spear point. Mm -hmm. uh, and that requires a lot of a lot of moves um, mm -hmm. right. <laughs> to get it from the raw material to that finished product. And along the way, the, the waste that you produce is actually tells a story. It leaves the breadcrumbs to the to the, the final product, even if that product itself is no longer there. So it may sound a bit esoteric, but it's a lot of fun because in addition to the, the lectures and the reading material, uh, it gives people an opportunity to try something that most have never done before and uh, learn a great deal about something that they may have ne never thought about in the past. Yeah, so, so it sounds like there's a lot of really hands-on material with the idea of learning how to make these tools, Absolutely. but also sort of some like investigativeness as well, teaching students about the, how to identify um, not just what the material is, but just like, oh, if it's like this, that means the, that means this type of tool is being produced essentially. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the first things that we introduce students to uh, what type of stones are good for making stone tools. And I'll, I'll clarify a bit further. We're talking about flake stone tools rather than uh, things like grinding tools and, and those types of uh, materials that would be used for 
uh, processing grains and, and mm -hmm. grinding up uh, other types of material. Those are commonplace in a lot of archaeological sites, mm -hmm. but the flake stones are pretty much ubiquitous to every type of site. And okay. by, by having the students, first of all, they have to learn that not all stones flake. The ones that are most, most like glass do flake, and those that are most like glass are generally chalcedony, flint, or jasper, of course, obsidian, because they all have glass-like qualities. And, and that's the key, because you need some kind of material that will not only create a sharp edge, but will give you a predictable outcome as you're shaping it. Mm -hmm. And one of the, the fascinating things about stone tool replication, as well as uh, one of the most challenging is the fact that you not only have to know the quality of the stone and whether or not it is going to give you what you were trying to get out of it, but you, it's, it's like a advanced uh, game of three-dimensional chess. You're always thinking about 15 moves ahead uh, of how you're going to get to the final product uh, by removing the next several flakes so it's there's a lot more to it than people uh, might think in addition there's also a number of different technologies people just didn't make arrowheads and spear points and knives they also produced various types of what we call blades which are uh, flakes of stone that are that are long and have parallel sides. And what's so special about blades is that they can be used for all sorts of uh, cutting activities. And in fact, the first sickles that we have recovered from archeological settings in the Middle East and elsewhere uh, are these blades made out of flint that were placed in wooden handles and used as sickles. So in, in ancient Mesoamerica, blades were used to create a wide range of different types of cutting tools, as well as weapons. The, the maquitl, which is a, an Aztec or Mayan sword, was a flat wooden handle that was lined with blades all the way around in that particular weapon was greatly feared by the conquistadors because uh, it was said uh, by witnesses that horses had been decapitated with one blow. And in other cases, conquistadors had been cleaved in two. So that was a weapon that was uh, very uh, useful uh, in warfare, as you might imagine. So right, yeah. There's so there's yeah. There's a a wide range of things that we teach our students, as well as the history of the production of stone tools, because the very first tools made by our earliest ancestors, the hominins in Eastern Africa and in other parts of Asia, uh, were very crude. 
but at the same time, they're more sophisticated than anything uh, a chimpanzee or closest living relic relative can make. Correct. And going from a cobble that has a few flakes knocked off of it and uh, using that as a chopping tool or the flakes themselves as expedient knives <laughs> is a long, uh, a long cry from these complex blade technologies and the production of some of these fine Mayan eccentrics that uh, are frequently found in, in middle America. Yeah, I, that, that was actually, you know, something I was kind of talking about with, uh, with it was, it's funny, I was talking with someone today about, um, about the pyramids and everything about how there's about how people like to say that oh people in the past were just kind of dumb in general like yeah. you know but it's like and and that's why there's like this like disbelief about the pyramids like how could they build something like that and it's like well they didn't just start building giant pyramids right away you right. know they, they started with smaller structures and simpler structures and over time developed the sort of thing so yeah i i yeah, yeah it, it it doesn't surprise me when i hear that 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 history of tools having that same sort of like evolutionary process you know, absolutely as well. yeah and the thing that's fascinating about the evolution of tools is there's a direct correlation with the the increasing complexity of the tools and the growth of the cerebral cortex hmm. uh, in size because in our in our earliest ancestors you know fully bipedal hominids that lack the canines that we see in most modern apes mm -hmm. uh, they had the simple cobble tools and, and flake tools and that allowed them to do a lot of things that uh, eventually made it easier for them to live in larger groups and be more successful and not only scavenging but later on hunting and each step of the way provided opportunities that led to further experimentation. And, you know, by a million years ago, it's most likely that our, oh, the earliest members of the genus Homo go back at least uh, 2.5 million years. So uh, some of the most, we make a, a rather large leap in about a million and a half years from these tools that are not terribly sophisticated to ones that we call hand axes because they are about the size of a uh, just a bit larger than the palm of the hand and they're a teardrop in shape and they serve several purposes not only do they serve as an advanced form of uh, chopper but they can also be used for digging. They can be used for uh, cutting the joint capsules of uh, large animals that are that are dead. Um, but the flakes that you remove off of them, it serves as a constant source of these expedient knives. And it's amazing to think that uh, the types of of stones that lend themselves to this kind of uh, tool production have a they have an edge that is sharper than surgical steel and it's really quite 
uh, humbling when you take a look at the edge of an obsidian blade at high magnification, about 600 power, and then look at the edge of a piece of surgical steel at that same magnification. And you'll note that the surgical steel looks like a, a crude buzzsaw, whereas the edge of the stone blade is a completely straight and smooth. In fact, uh, in some cases, we're talking about a few molecules in thickness, which makes them a superior cutting tool. The only problem is, is that they, unlike surgical steel, they wear out after a while and wear out more <laughs> right. quickly. So, but the thing is that people, once that tool wore out, it could be discarded, it enters the archeological record. Then the tool maker sets up his hand ax, which is also his source of additional flake knives and he knocks another one off and goes goes from there so mm -hmm. that particular idea of using a kind of a bifacial core persisted for the next um, well up until fairly recently within the last hundred years in some places well dang wow this is really interesting information um so i i do i do want to dig a little deeper into uh so so what exactly would should students expect in terms of like workload for a class like this when they're when they're when they sign up for this what should they be expecting ah that's a good good question well first of all um it's it's split between lectures and the outdoor exercises. And I want to stress that this is something that we do out of doors because uh, it is potentially dangerous in an enclosed place, in an enclosed space, because every time you remove one of these flakes, it produces a cloud of glass particles, basically. Oh. Uh, so you don't want to be breathing those in. And right. not that you would probably produce enough in a, a a one hour session in a an enclosed lab but just it's a safety precaution we take mm -hmm. uh, plus it's just better to be out of doors and we usually offer the class of course uh during the spring so it's okay. generally not too hot until the the last couple of weeks mm -hmm. uh, but it's Generally, we just ask people to wear uh, closed-toed shoes and, you know, clothes that they'd wear uh, if they were going out hiking or, you know, doing things, doing chores outside, uh, anything that's comfortable, but at the same time offers protection to the legs and the feet, because I've seen people show up with flip-flops and I say you don't want to do that and they think they know more than I do and they wonder you know what what went wrong when their feet start bleeding so <laughs> the thing that you have to realize as I said you're producing mm -hmm. these little micro knives mm -hmm. that are extremely uh, sharp mm -hmm. and 
I, I don't want to scare students off by saying, yes, you're working with these really sharp flakes, but once you learn how to do it correctly, and that's the reason I'm there is to kind of guide you through the process, it's, it's perfectly safe and you know you, you might get the occasional cut uh but part of everybody's kit which i'll be talking about in a second is a you know a box of bandages so you can take care of the little nicks and cuts that you might get uh when you're doing percussion flaking in particular mm -hmm. so uh so back to the kit for a moment every student is required to purchase a flint napping kit and I've got a, a, a person that produces these kits who uh, lives in Southern California and she's a profession she's a professional flint napper which is the colloquial term we use to describe people who replicate stone tools and for about from 25 to 50 dollars you can get one of these beginner kits and it's got you know the hammer stone which is what we all start out using because uh, the initial stages of stone tool production is to use a hard hammer and the hard hammer is generally a rounded stone that is uh, either limestone or it can be uh, basalt or quartz, but something that's that's a little bit softer is better for obsidian. And since I supply the raw material, which is obsidian, the reason obsidian is provided is twofold. Number one, um, it's easier for students to work. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't have to to bang on the rock as hard and also, it's easier for me to get. There are sources in Eastern California that I have access to, and so we can get uh, get obsidian very easily. Mm -hmm. Whereas flint, you know, if we were trying to teach students using flint, we would have to do something called heat treatment to get it to the same uh, level of brittleness that obsidian has naturally. Okay. So. The other component of these kits would be a hand pad and a lap pad to protect your further protect your legs. And when we move to something called pressure flaking, where you're taking a a preform that you've made out of a flake, and you want to make it into something like a, an arrow point, then you have to use a a piece of copper rod that is sharpened and is placed into a, a wooden dowel handle. And that sounds kind of complicated, but it's easier to use. And it's also the type of thing that was used in later prehistory. People started using copper because the, the typical material that people had used for thousands of years were antler tines from, from deer and uh, from elk. And those wear down pretty quickly. And the other option would be to take a piece of bone and sharpen it and put it in a wooden handle. Um, but it too can wear down. So the copper, I, people say, well, isn't that cheating? And I said, no, because you go to ancient Cahokia along the 
Mississippi River a thousand years ago, and they were using wooden handles with uh, copper tips, copper that they had imported from Lake Michigan, areas around there. So uh, those are the, and then of course, safety is important. So everyone has to have goggles. And actually the idea of wearing masks, so we're kind of pre-adapted now that we've had to wear masks the last year and a half. Right. I sometimes tell students, even though we're outside, if they would feel more comfortable wearing a mask. Uh, but since we're wearing masks anyway, the last time I took the class uh, during COVID time, and I had to get special permission. And one of the only reasons we got to do it is that the lecture part was presented on Zoom, and then the actual the lab practical portion of it was done once a week. Students would come to campus and we'd meet in the archaeology lab in, in the science building and then set up our tarp uh, out in the loading dock area. So the kit includes not only safety materials, but the materials that you'll need to learn the basics of stone tool production. Okay, awesome. So, so I one of the things that you know that was kind of good news to hear is that this class is still being offered despite the pandemic, and that that that's pretty nice. So you said this class is typically offered in the spring. You said it's typically offered in the spring. Um, we just taught it last year, so we'll mm -hmm. probably teach it in uh, 22, 23. I think that's where. Heading to now because it's 2122. Okay. Um, and as I said, one of the reasons we offer offer it only every other year is that we want to get critical mass so we have enough people to to fill the class. But mm -hmm. at the same time, we don't want to have you know 25 or 30 people because it's in, impractical. So a good number uh is right around 10 students because mm -hmm. that way i can give them more personal attention because it's, mm -hmm. initially people are very frustrated because it's it's not something that comes natural to most people there are a few folks who are really good artistically and with manual dexterity and they figure it out right away but most people don't and, uh, you know, it took me a long time uh, to get to the point where I felt confident in just making a simple biface or a, a basic projectile point. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, and, and the goal is not for people to, by the end of the semester, have, you know, the skills of someone that's been doing this for 40 years. <laughs> And if they can't make anything more than a little arrowhead or a, or a clunky biface, that's okay. It's not about, you know, becoming an expert. It's more about learning about the process and learning what it is that why archaeologists do replication to help them understand the, the lithic portion of the archaeological record, okay. which for years I'll just add as a footnote, uh, was basically a guessing game. People would, instead of experimenting, they would come up with, a, you know, they'd look at an artifact 
and they try to discern its function based on what it looked like, mm -hmm. uh, which can be uh, problematic, as you can imagine. And it's only been probably in the last 35 or 40 years that stone tool experimentation and replication has become more of a common part of hunter and gather archaeology. Right. Okay. Awesome. Well, I do have one more question for you before sure. we wrap up this interview. Um, I guess it's it's a two-parter question. Okay. Um, but so in your experience teaching this class at CSUB, what has been your favorite moment and least favorite moment in uh, teaching this course? Uh, that's fairly easy to to describe. My my favorite moment is when my students have their aha moment. Okay. And, someone squeals with delight that they actually made something that they've been trying to to perfect maybe over you know three or four weeks and then right. when they're successful at it and are excited about it visibly that's that's something that you know makes me feel good because it shows not only that they're into what it is that i'm trying to teach but they also care about reaching or setting goals for themselves, which is all I can ask people to do. As I said, it's not it's it's not a competition, and it's not about whether you can make you know fabulous replicas of, of ancient tools. It's just going through the process and learning it. Probably the uh, the least favorite uh, <laughs> uh, is when someone gets really frustrated and you know throws up their hands and decide that they want to quit and i try to turn that around and if that person is is particularly uh you know bummed out that they can't seem to make anything i just tell them what i just said about it not being a contest consider it a personal uh a mission for oneself to, you know, get, be able to, if you can remove a decent flake, that's more than most people can do. And you right. can use that flake for all sorts of, you know, I've, I've skinned a rabbit and quartered it with just a little flake and it was still sharp enough to use again. So just creating a simple flake knife, which you can do, most students are able to do that fairly rapidly but again you get you get extremes you get the people that are you know take to it like water which are you know smaller in number and then the few people that are really discouraged but i try to turn that around as i said so that they don't you know get so frustrated that they drop the class uh, because it's not and that's not something that they're necessarily they're not going to be graded on their skills at making stone tools they're going to be graded on we do a lab practicum and i'll cover the material that we go through uh and you know that's what they're going to be graded on and if they paid attention to the lectures and and, and watched my demonstrations as well as participated in the uh, 
attempt at production of stone tools and they'll do just fine. Thank you for joining us for Course Considerations brought to you by The Runner on the Air. What did you think about this class? Feel free to reach out to us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or TikTok. And of course, you can always read our publication on therunneronline.com. We hope to see you again soon.